If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I have some qualifiers that I'd like to just go ahead and say out of the gate. I personally hate the idea of a New Year's sermon. Full disclosure, okay? This is not the kind of thing that I I personally like. New Year's not a not a holy day. It's not even a church day. I'm pretty sure it's a, a secularist, ritualistic kind of day. Whatever. There you go. All my cards on the table. However, there are strong Christian t- traditions of recapturing pagan secularist days. And there are strong church history moments of of Christians doing so with the new year. Have you ever heard of a watch service before? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of a watch service before. We got a few. We got a few in the room. Uh, A watch service was actually uh, hosted by churches. This was not too long ago, within the last hundred years or so, with the purpose of, of seeing the new year come in and it's with it, it's new blessings from the Lord. And say what you want to say about it, whatever. I think I see this as more of an opportunity of, well, around the new year, folks are generally looking for new habits, right? They're generally looking for, for resolutions, for things to change about their lives. We're, we're more open to change and transformation and, and new ideas for some reason <laughs> when the calendar flips from December 31st to January 1st. It's a tradition thing. I get that. But I don't see necessarily anything wrong with taking advantage of that tradition. So, so that's what my plan, my intention is to do today. Now, don't refer to this, and I don't consider this a New Year sermon. My hope is to take advantage of our mindsets while we search for something new to try. So turn with me, knowing all of that, to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 11 through 16. And then we're going to pray. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, we ask again for you to teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would take your word and plant it as seed deep inside of all of our hearts. Father, if there are hearts of stone here today, that you would take out those stone hearts and give them hearts of flesh that love you and desire your word and desire to keep your commandments. Father, we recognize that you are ruler supreme over all of creation. 
and therefore ruler supreme over us as your people. May we not only recognize this truth mentally, but may we know it with every single fiber of our being today. You are good, and your mercies endure forever. And so this morning we ask that the mercy that you would pour out upon us would be that you would not let us go, but you would hold us fast by your strength, by your power, and that we may be transformed more and more, growing up into the fullness of Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. This past year has been very good for Jesus' church. And when I say Jesus' church, I, I mean our little representation of it right here. This past year has been, has been very good for Christ's church, for Christ's church. We have new covenant members. We have new baptisms. We have tons of new babies. I literally don't know how many new babies we added this year. That's how many, okay? And we have more families that are expecting new babies. We are, we are a fruitful church. It's good. And I pray that we would continue to be so. If you, if you know about our sister church in Lafayette, they have, they have a new building now. That was a huge, huge need for them. They, they needed a, uh, they had this old, you know, great, but derelict building that they were meeting in to worship in. And it was costing a fortune just to maintain it. And so they, they built a gym and we all raised money together to help them build a gym for the, for the academy. And now the, the Lafayette church, the Christ church Lafayette is now meeting inside of that gym on Sunday. So we we're able to get rid of a lot of unnecessary expenses. And now our kids have a gymnasium for those of you that have children over at the academy. Speaking of the academy, the academy continues to grow each year. Each year it ticks up by, I don't know, like 15%, 20%, something like that as far as enrollment goes. And the Lord continues to bless. Now I caution you, we don't regard numbers as success around here. Amen? We don't want to like fall into that ditch, but it is fun whenever the Lord blesses in such a way and we can see things like that. We have planned and will be hosting our first ever, I would call it regional church conference here in South Louisiana in this coming month. And that's a very exciting thing for us to be a part of. We have members who grew families and grew their businesses, and some even started new fruitful careers this past year. We have several families in our church that are now taking the call very seriously to disciple their children. Amen? That's a good thing. Even some electing to homeschool their kids in order to do it. Kudos to those families, by the way, because that's a terrifying jump. This is not, <laughs> I will take personal responsibility for all the education of all of my children from this moment forward or until I decide not to anymore. It's a terrifying jump. Kudos to you. And we encourage you to take that call seriously. And we will love you enough to hold you accountable to it. But here's the question. We had a great year. What's next? Right? Since we, since we typically think in new years and new directives and new directions and all that kind of stuff around this mysterious switch from December 31st to January 1, if you're like me, I've spent several hours over the last day or so thinking, what is next? 
What is the, what is the next shift? What is the next direction? What is the next thing that I should be, I should be focusing and, and, and paying attention to? Now, many of you that know me personally, and if you've been a part of this church for any period of time, you've heard me say this before. I want the city of Opelousas to be a Christian town before I'm dead. You know that. If you've been around me long enough, you know that that's something that I'm, I, I want to see happen. I want Opelousas to all not just claim the name of Jesus, but follow him and his commands before I die, or at least the majority. <laughs> Maybe, maybe just 51%. <laughs> if I could just hit 51%, that would be great. And if you're watching the news, especially right now, uh, you know that we have a lot of work to do before we can get there. There's all kinds of things that are playing out in our local news cycle about our city, again, that indicate that. But it isn't impossible. I say this, I say this to some of you sometimes, and I say, yeah, I want Opelousas to be a Christian town before I'm dead. I, I mean it when I say it. And some of y'all look at me like, oh, that's cute. He's got dreams. <laughs> okay. But listen to me. It's been done before. And it's been done on a much larger and more difficult scale before. And accomplished well. Charles Spurgeon built and relocated his church into the Metropolitan Tabernacle with room, are you ready for this? For up to 6,000 people. And in fact, one of the things that filled Spurgeon with anxiety was when he preached was just how full the room was. (laughs) It made him nervous. He was afraid, and he was afraid for good reasons because people, there were such crowds that came to hear him preach that they were injured. They did fall and trample and stumble over each other. It it made him nervous for good reason. 6,000 people in one church service? And if you've read any of Spurgeon's sermons, you know that he minced no words. He was not an ear tickler. He preached the gospel and he preached against sin and he did so directly. Charles Spurgeon started seminaries and schools to train future pastors again and again. 6,000 people. That's more than a third of the population of the city of Opelousas. George Whitfield regularly preached to crowds in the open air, outside, okay? Outside, in the open air, with no form of amplification, preached to crowds of over 10,000 on the regular. His largest crowd that he ever preached to was around 25,000 people. Can you believe that? Home dude didn't have a megaphone or nothing. Benjamin Franklin, who was a friend of his, actually paced out the distance that he could still hear Whitfield proclaiming his words. And it was well beyond the edge of the crowd. 25,000, that's nearly double the population of our city. In one service, in one service. Thomas Chalmers transformed the city of Glasgow into a Christian town, creating Christian schools, caring for the poor, and setting deacons and elders with responsibilities over specific neighborhoods. He made sure that everyone in that town had a degree of oversight from a representative of his church. He made certain of it. 
He started schools teaching kids simple lessons like how to brush their teeth. I'm not making this up. Teaching them literacy and bringing them to to a whole new level because he had a, a Christian vision and he did it successfully. John Calvin turned Geneva into a distinctly Christian community with a distinctly Christian government. He started schools and hospitals. He read and consumed and produced so much to be faithful to his church. The stuff that he wrote was not for us. Did you know that? Calvin's institutes was not for us. Calvin got converted at 24. He wrote the first version of his institutes at 25. At 25. A year later. And he edited and tweaked it for the rest of his life. The publications that he preached, John Calvin preached every day of the week and twice on Sunday, every other week. And on the weeks that he wasn't preaching every day of the week, he lectured three times a week to his students. And I don't mean like little shab baby lectures like we have today. I mean like real meat instruction lectures. We still feel the ripple effects of his life and Geneva to this day. But how did all these guys do it? Right? That's the next question. I mean, if you, if you think like me. The next question is, how, how, how on earth? How did it work? How did they get to be so incredibly fruitful? And if you're not careful, when that question first comes into your mind, the pragmatism comes in right behind it. Do you know what I'm saying? The, 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 the pragmatic approach comes in, comes in, creeps into your mind right behind it. And we say things like, oh, well, they, they just had, you know, good productive work habits. They, they woke up early in the morning, right? I mean, they, they had a lot of hours in the day. They worked hard. That's what they did. And while that might be true for some of them, in fact, legend says that John Calvin slept four hours at night. It's probably why he died at 55, but moving on. I don't think it's just because they woke up early. Or maybe we say things like, oh, well, they had very, very strong networking capabilities. They knew how to make friends, earn loyalty quickly, and maximize those friendships over time. And sure, that's true, definitely about some of them. But a lot of those guys, people just hated their guts. <laughs> In fact, the only guy that I could say on the list that I just read to you that was generally well-received was probably George Whitfield, And he had people that hated his guts, <laughs> hated him and the things that he was saying. It couldn't have been that. Maybe it was just that they had great public speaking skills, right? And that's what a lot of people say about Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon is known for being such a phenomenal orator. Like if you, if you go read and compare his sermons against other preachers of his day, he was head and above the rest of them. And he spoke in the common language of the people as opposed to what the other people would say, which was more of a heady, hyper-intellectual type sermon. He spoke in a way that he could be understood. And that's what made, rose him to a certain degree of, of fame. So that's, that's true about him. That's true. But man, that can't be it. Or maybe it's because they, they had money. They had, they had that second gen money. You know what I'm saying? They had that old money. That's why they had so much success. Well, that's probably true for many of them, but that's not the reason. That's not the fundamental reason. Or maybe it's because they were great fundraisers. That's true of a lot of them. That's true too. But you see, if we're not careful, what we're going to do is we are going to take their gifts and take their, take their legacies and take all the end results and just try to duplicate that and not ask the question, what made them different from the beginning? What made them different from the jump? 
I know people who are, who, who got old money, who, who are great fundraisers, who have phenomenal networking abilities, who have great public speaking skills, who, who wake up early and they work hard. I know people with all of those gifts and their legacies won't be a drop in the bucket compared to these men. Why? I would argue they had something else first. Okay? If you read Charles Spurgeon's biography, one of the things that will stand out to you very crisp and clear is that he had a passionate, passionate, personal devotion to Jesus. In fact, records say that they could, when visitors would go to his house and they would interrupt his time of family worship with his wife and with his children, he would put his visitors in the foyer (laughs) and say, sorry, we got stuff to do right now. (laughs) And then he would have his time of recordedly very loud and passionate prayer with his family, with his wife, and with his children. And no matter how big his church was, he had blocks of time available every day for people to come and meet with him after his services. And the majority of people that he led to Jesus was in those personal meetings, not in the big revivalistic gatherings of his worship services. Whitfield, literally, if you read his biography, and I would encourage you to read all these guys' biographies, honestly. If you read Whitfield's biography, one of the things that stands out crystal clear is he literally wore the floorboards down beside his bed. He would wake up in the morning and his knees would hit the floor. And he would stay there for hours before his preaching appointments began. Reading, studying, and praying. Literally wore grooves into the floor of his home. Chalmers, Thomas Chalmers, Glasgow, was famously quoted with this driving question of his entire life. He would ask, What is the most effectual method of making Christianity so to bear upon a population is that it shall reach every door and be brought into contact with every family. That was his motivator. Every day, every moment, that was his drive. Calvin, as we talked about before, homeboy slept about four hours a night diligently laboring and working to serve his local church. And Geneva, listen, let me just be straight. Geneva was a lot like Opelousas, okay? Geneva was, Geneva was not a place where people wanted to go and have big careers. Geneva was a population of about 12,000 people. It wasn't a place where somebody was going to go to get famous and become celebrity pastor. That wasn't the thing, but... Calvin had a mission, and that was to lead those people to Jesus and to lead them faithfully, and he gave his life for it, and you still benefit from that to this day. To this day, you still benefit from it. His goal was to lead his people faithfully. And there's the key. There it is. Did you see it? The key... If you want to live a fruitful life for the kingdom of Jesus, the key is faithfulness. That's it. That's it. You see, it's such a, it's such a tiny little thing, isn't it? 
It's such it, that that doesn't look charming. <laughs> that doesn't look impressive. I wake up early in the morning and I read my Bible and I pray every day. That's not that's not a holding a big revival where four thousand people come and a thousand of them know Jesus for the first time and you baptize three hundred folks. That doesn't look that way, does it? But it's the consistent example over and over and over again. If you want fruitfulness in your life, the first and only ingredient that you need is faithfulness. And that's what we want. That's what we want. If if you want to sum up what 2024 and the rest of our lives need to look like, okay? If you want to build habits moving forward for the rest of your days, the only thing that we should be fighting for, the one thing is faithfulness. That's it. That's it. Fighting for faithfulness in all of our lives. That's it. And that's what we want. We want a church. We want a church. I want. And I pray that you do too. And I think that we do. We want a church full of faithful, fruitful Christians. I mean, think think about Jesus. Jesus ascended into heaven. And what did he leave behind? A dozen dudes who, God bless them, weren't that smart and were a little awkward and didn't have much of a clue. But you know what they did have? Faithfulness. Where did they go to wait for the Holy Spirit? They went to the upper room. They did not leave. And they prayed and waited for Jesus to send the promised Holy Spirit that he was going to send. And once they had the power, they went out. That's faithfulness. Do you see? That's faithfulness. That's the point, if you go down in our reading, Ephesians chapter 4, if you go all the way to verse 16, that's the point of verse 16. Look at it with me. It says, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working, how? Properly. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, the problem, here's the problem. The problem is that we seek the growth, right? We, we, we seek the, we want, we want the big growth. We want the, we want the big numbers. We want the big dramatic events. We want the religious experiences. We want to, we want to be able to say a hundred people got baptized and a thousand people believed in Jesus and revival spreading through the street. We want all the growth. But the growth comes when all the parts work properly. Now, the parts here are are what? The parts here are you, right? It's the people. When all the parts are working properly, faithfully, then the growth comes. When the part is doing fundamentally what it is supposed to be doing. The temptation is for us to, to work for growth. And we think that, we think that growth is, is faithfulness. And then, then we reach around and what winds up happening is the tail starts to wag the dog. You know what I'm talking about? And we start to, we start to compromise in, in certain issues. We, we, we chase what we think the fruit should look like rather than the nutrients the tree needs in order to produce proper fruit. Are you following with me here? You, you don't, 
You don't take fruit and stick it on a tree and say, look, the tree's fruitful. That would be stupid. We would all agree that that's a bad idea. Instead, what do you do to make a tree fruitful? You, you, you put nutrients into the soil. You care for it. You prune it back whenever you ought to. And then the fruit comes. Then the tree is fruitful. But you have to be faithful to it first, you see? You have to care for it the way that it needs to be cared for. It needs to be working properly, faithfully. When each part is fundamentally doing what it's supposed to do. But that pragmatism comes and it creeps into our hearts. And it's creeped into mine. We want to, we want to win Abelousas for Jesus. So what do we need? We need influence. Which means we need more butts in the seats so that we can say, look at all our people. You better listen to us. That's pragmatism. That's pragmatism. And it weaves its head in nasty, fast ways. We we need a bigger church so we can have more influence. That's out of order. That's out of order. Because then, with the goal simply to be more folks in church, what happens? The standards of membership start to become squishy. And eventually, you're you're afraid to, to preach and proclaim certain truths, certain subjects, because it might cause somebody to get their feelings hurt and leave. And then, eventually, you're left with what? A faithless church. In other words, not a real church. A church with its lampstand put out, as the book of Revelation says. No, 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 no. We can't do that. We can't do that. We can't chase the fruit. We must chase the Lord. We must chase faithfulness first. This is the parable of the talents, right? This is, this is the parable of the talents. If you are faithful, he, he gives talents out, right? Remember the, the Lord gives talents out to, to people and he, he, said, he says, go and, and earn a profit. And some of them do. And, and they take their talents and they come back and they say, look, I turned these you know, five talents into 10 talents or I turned these 10 talents into 12 talents or whatever. And then what happens? And the Lord says, wow, you've been faithful with these things. Then I'm going to do what? I'm going to grow your influence. I'm going to bless you with more. You've been faithful with the little you will be now i trust that you will be faithful with much if god has a certain way that he wants us to live faithfully working properly and we don't live that way then why on earth would he get us to be steward of more of his kingdom did you hear what i said listen listen if god has structured the world to work in a certain way, and we refuse to obey Him with regard to how He's ordered it. We refuse to follow His commands. We refuse to be faithful with what He's already given us. Then why on earth would He give us more to steward? He wouldn't. We wouldn't manage it well. We'd we'd screw it up, right? And so, of course, He's not going to entrust that with us. We'd, We'd misallocate the resources, So what does it mean to be working properly? What does it mean to be faithful according to this text? How do we get there? Let's go back. Go back to verse 11. And let's let's pay close attention to the first four or five verses here. And we're going to work through this. What does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to, to, to be properly pointed? All right? Let's start. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers... For what purpose? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's it. Well, that's the first piece. Now let's roll through some more. 
until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Maturity is what he's talking about. He's talking about faithfulness. He's talking about growth into exactly what God has designed and ordered you to become. Growing up into Christ. Mature manhood, he refers to it as. Proper working. And it comes from what? Did you see it? It was at the very beginning. Look at verses 11 and 12. What, 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 where does it come from? Where does maturity come from? Where does, where does growth come from? Now, actually, hey, don't put those verses up there. Take them off. Thank you. Don't get distracted. Listen, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. Our temptation, I think we get it from Easternism and a little bit of this mix of American independence, okay? Our temptation is to say, I need spiritual maturity. That means I need more alone time with Jesus, right? That's our, that's our temptation, if I have more personal devotion time, if I have more personal alone time with Jesus, then that's going to drive spiritual maturity higher in me as a person. And so we, we approach this a little bit with like an Eastern monkish flair or a, or a hyper-spiritualistic flair. We say, if I just have more me time with Jesus, then I will grow up into maturity. I'll be better. And listen, if you want to have personal devotions, you should. That's good. You should read your Bible. You should have prayer time with the Lord. You should pray for your, you should pray for your needs and for the needs of those around you on some personal level. All those things are great. But if that is the only thing that you think makes a difference in your spiritual maturity, you are dead wrong and you're dead fruit on a vine. Okay? What does it say? Now put the verses back. What does it say in 11 and 12? Where does it come from? And he gave them apostles. Prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to do what? To equip you. That's it. You need a shepherd. You do. We do. God has designed the world to work in such a way that his people, his flock, his sheep, have under-shepherds, pastors, teachers to lead and guide them. It is the role of the shepherd to equip you. To equip you with what? Let me take a step back again. In order for you to mature, in other words, in other words, if you want to mature in your growth with Jesus, you need a church, you need a shepherd, and you need a biblical teaching ministry to equip you. And you find all of those in one place, and that is the local church. Okay? If you want to grow, if you want to mature, and let me just tell you, I, as a pastor, notice a lights-out difference between the folks who show up on Sunday and show up on Sunday school and show up at Bible study. I see a lights-out difference in their lives. They are growing and maturing at exponential rates that we didn't have before we started a Sunday school, before we started a, a Wednesday night Bible study that we didn't have yet. 
But just from that faithfulness and from our men's Bible studies and our women's Bible studies and the book readings and the studying that we do, if we want to grow, you need a church. You need a shepherd. And you need a biblical teaching ministry to do the work. That's the difference maker. If you want to grow and mature, you have to have those things. If you want to change the world, you cannot do it apart from Jesus' church. It's not possible. The growth that you receive will be false. Which means, let's take it back a step. Which means that we need shepherds. Did you know that our church is almost 10 years old? In in September. This September, we we roll over from single digits and double digits. 10 years old. Some of y'all are like, wow, we're all old. (laughs) That's the reaction that you just had. Yes, you're right. Just look at Buddy's beard. It's mostly gray. (laughs) We've been here. It wasn't like that (laughs) when we started. (laughs) And neither was mine. And here we are. It's time for us to take seriously the charge of raising up the next set of leaders for Jesus' church. It's time for us to take seriously the charge of elders and deacons and pastors for generations to come. It's time. We have to start thinking about this now. Which means we need called and qualified shepherds. And that their primary focus is the teaching ministry of the church. About three or four years ago, um, when we first planted, we were, we were one of those programmatic uh, churches. Do you know what I'm talking about? Programmatic, like we, we've got we've got this ministry and we've got that ministry and we've got this program and we've got this thing that meets and we've got the okay. And that was weird. <laughs> we had 45 different service teams and everybody was on some type of service team and folks were running and gunning like crazy and our people were being stretched so thin and it was like, I think we might be messing this up. And it was about three or four years ago that I think it was around the time all the COVID things were going on. It just kind of landed. The primary responsibility of the leaders of the church is the teaching ministry. And what does the teaching ministry do? It equips the saints... To do what? Everything else. Everything else. I remember one time somebody came up to me who was relatively new to the church. They'd been visiting for a little while and they said, hey, how do we get plugged in to serve in the church? And I was like, I, I, this was, we, we had adopted our new model for a little while. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, you know, like help with setup or help with, you know, passing plates or things like that. And I was like, I think we've got all that covered. <laughs> I don't think we need, we don't need that. We don't need, we don't need more service team. You know, if you become a member, eventually, you know, if somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder and ask you to pass a plate or help with something, things like that. But if you really want to serve in the biblical sense, show up early and leave late. Why? Because that's how you get to know the people in the room. And that's how you get to know the needs that need to be met 
the people that need service, and how you can do the work of the ministry. The the primary role of the shepherds is the teaching ministry of the church. This is why the apostles appointed deacons. Remember? Why, why the, the apostles were getting tied up trying to care for all the poor that were joining their church. The, and they said, hey, the elders can't do this anymore. We need to appoint deacons. And so they appointed deacons so that they could devote themselves to the teaching of the word and to prayer. We need called and qualified shepherds. And it's time for us to start thinking about that. Number two. This means... It's the church, it's the people, and we've said this a little bit already, that are ones that are supposed to go out and do the works of ministry once they are equipped. In other words, this is a mindset shift. Now, many of you have already gone through this, and I'm just reinforcing stuff that we already know, but there's a lot of new people here. And so I'm saying something that's going to be contradictory to the vast majority of things that you've heard in most churches that, that are, exist in our area. So just hold on, strap in, and, and listen very closely. We aren't as God's people waiting for the church to do events. We aren't waiting for the administration of the church to start ministry programs. We aren't waiting or expecting the pastors and the staff to be the ones doing evangelism and the ones doing ministry and the ones trying to win other people to the following of Jesus. Ministry is the job of every single church member. Every one of you. That's your job is the job of the teachers of the Word, the shepherds of the Word, to teach and instruct and equip the people of God for the works of ministry so that they can go out and do that job. Ministry is the job of all of us. In every single opportunity that the Lord has given you throughout your day, it's your job. The Lord has given you opportunity to serve others, then that's what you do. You serve others. Because that's what that word ministry means. Diakonia is the Greek word. It means service. Do we mean feeding, clothing, housing the poor? Well, I mean, maybe. Could mean that. But but probably not. Does it mean building and funding orphanages and adoptions? Oh yeah, I mean, probably. You know, it could, it could mean that. It could. Does it mean starting a school, a college, a, a hospital? I mean, one day, Yeah. One day, sure, it it means all of that. One day, one day it means all of that. But what does it mean right now? See, I think that's where people get mixed up. When we start saying things, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, they are like, I'm going to go start a nonprofit. And I'm like, that's not what it means, okay? It doesn't mean start there. It doesn't mean do the biggest thing you can possibly think of as fast as you possibly can. It doesn't mean that. I think that's where we get lost, we think of ministry and we immediately think pastoral or some kind of nonprofit. No, we are, we're starting three or four layers out. And instead, we got to start at the beginning, at the center, at the point. Uh, I want to use a pastor as an example, okay? Somebody doesn't just walk down the front of church and say, I'm a pastor, and the whole church says, okay, that's a terrible idea, Okay? Pastors are to be called, they're to be tested, they're to be qualified, and they're to be ordained by the local church. That's the pattern, okay? Called, tested, qualified, ordained, commissioned, and sent. But what qualifies a pastor to be a pastor in the first place? Y'all know the answer to this. It's his family. 
A pastor is qualified to be a pastor by his wife and his children and his household being in order. That's biblical qualifications. And if he does not meet those qualifiers, then he's not qualified. Period, full stop. If his house is in chaos, if his children are not in order, if they are not being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, if they are not following Jesus, and if they are rejecting Christ and his commandments by and large, then he is not qualified to be a pastor. If we just took that and swept through the churches of Acadiana, we would be in a far better place quickly. But we're at least going to do it here. We're at least going to do it here. What qualifies a pastor to be a pastor? His family. Okay, cool. But let's go back one more layer, shall we? What qualifies a man to have a family? A woman. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I mean, that's kind of a joke, but you get get what I'm saying, right? What what qualifies a man to have a family? A, A woman qualifies a man to have a family. What do I mean by that? I mean, at some point or another, this man had to prove to a woman, her father, a woman's father, that he could take care of her, that he could provide for her, that he could meet her needs, that he could protect her. You see what I'm saying? A man just doesn't show up to a woman and be like, yo, let's get married. And the woman says, sounds like a great idea. She needs a time of testing. Now, uh, I recognize largely in an American culture, we have left this idea and we just live in open, random sexual relationships until eventually maybe we decide we're so old that we should get married. And I don't know, it's weird. But in the understanding, the biblical understanding of marriage, there is a a time of testing where a man proves himself qualified to have a wife. And then the, the father of that young woman Gives that. This is why at a, at a marriage ceremony we had the tradition of saying, "Who gives this woman to be married?" And the father says, "What? I do," because it's a it's a sign of that young woman passing from her father's house to start a new household with this man. It's a it's the giving of the. That's why a, a father walks the bride down the aisle. He's giving his daughter. Right. That's why the father pays for the wedding because it's him throwing the party. Do you get what I'm saying? That's why all of these pieces are here. What is there supposed to be? I recognize we live in a broken world, and some of y'all are like, we didn't have any of that. I got it. I got it. But this is the way the ideal would be. And this is the ideal for all of our children. Amen? We want to hold on to these standards strongly. But what qualifies a man to have a family? A woman. Her father. And what ultimately is that woman and her father's requirements for that man? That he would be self-controlled, disciplined, and mature. You see, it's concentric circles that work its way out. You see how that plays? At the very center is you. And if you're not self-controlled, if you're not disciplined, if you're not mature, then we have work to do. But don't think that the unself-controlled person the person who can't, isn't mature enough to, to control himself is going to be mature enough to do this massive pastoral ministry. They're not going to be even remotely ready for it. Don't think that the person who lacks self-control is going to be able to go out and start this massive nonprofit that serves the community fully and thoroughly. No, they're not going to be ready for it. 
And it's going to have issues and fall apart and all kinds of problems. There are concentric circles, and it starts in the middle with you. Here's the real point that I'm getting at. Works of ministry. He equips the saints. The shepherds equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Here's the point I'm really trying to hammer down and get through to all of our heads. Are you ready? Works of ministry does not always mean some big, majestic, I have converted the entire city of Opelousas. Of course, it seems impossible when we start with the end in mind. Rather, we start with what the Lord has given us. And that's you. And that's your family. And that's for some of you, your businesses and your careers and your children. You're faithful with those pieces. And let me show you how this grows. You want to see how it grows? Let me just give you some examples. You, you as, a, as a young man, you self-discipline yourself, you control yourself, you fight for maturity in the Lord, and eventually you meet this beautiful godly woman, and you say, hey, I would like to get married. And then she says, ask my father. And then you say, oh no. And then as an as a integritous young Christian man, you do that. You go ask the father. And the father, dads take notes. The father, if he's a good father, he says questions like, how do you plan on providing for my daughter? Right, Brad? How do you, how do you plan on raising children? I've even heard stories of some fathers requiring the young man to show up with the first three or four years of a budget written out <laughs> to prove his capability. And now all the dads said, yes, and amen to that. Let's go. And that young man, eventually, he, he, he gets married. He, he moves on. He, he has a family. And now he's got children that he has to raise in the, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And that young man looks around, and he says, I have kids. Huh. They need to be educated. I guess we're going to homeschool these kids. Okay, here we go. Oh, wait. I don't know anything. <laughs> I need to learn a lot. And he educates himself so that he can educate his children. And eventually his self-education turns into other people desiring that their children be taught by him and raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And what comes out of that? A school. You see? And then the kids grow up. And now they've got, you know, 30, 40, 50 little kids that are being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord inside of this academy. Wow, look, at this is a school. There's a school and it's working. And these kids love Jesus. And then they graduate. And you say... Oh no, there are no colleges here, at least none that I trust. What are we going to do? We're going to start a college. You see? You see how that works? And then the kids get educated in the liberal arts through, and they're smarter than all of us. Amen! And they have better careers than all of us, and then some of them decide that they want to be doctors. And they look around and they realize how incredibly broken our secular medicine system is. And they say, man, everything around here is falling apart. What should we do? We should start a hospital. Let's do it. But do you see how all of that starts with you in your backyard? Do you see? 
And eventually, with all these Christian institutions of schools and colleges and universities and hospitals firing on all cylinders within a community, and the witness of Christ expanded in such a glorious way, and and Christians are starting businesses, and it begins to revive the economy, and folks look around and they say, what's different? What's changed in the last 15 years? My friends, it's Christianity. Real Christianity that's played out in every facet of our lives. If we are faithful with little, God will give us much. And most of the time, that's exactly how he does it. So, you want Opelousas to be a Christian town? Are you praying with your kids? Do you aspire to marry a godly man or woman? Do you aspire to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? That's where it starts. I want to start a Christian hospital. Are you using the healing balm of the word of Christ in your day-to-day life on others and on yourself? Are you being faithful in all of that? I want to start a Christian school or university. Are you teaching those within your purview, your children and others, the words of God and being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord? We have entered into this new phase of life where our kids are, they're big now. Everybody mistakes Marie for Rachel now, like all the time. Like they see Marie from the back and they're like, hey, Rachel, our kids are old. My youngest is going to be five this month. No more babies. We've entered into this new season, this new phase of life. And our church is not a baby anymore either. Ten years old. My goodness. And we're going into this new phase, new season of life with a revived understanding of this concept. All of life is ministry. All of it. Don't you dare take that away from your day to day. All of your life is ministry. All of your life is service. Why do you start a business? Because I want to get rich. Wrong motivator. Because you want to serve other people. The most successful businesses know that down deep. They exist to serve and meet a need of those around us. And according to the parable of the talents, God calls us to be faithful in those little things. And if we are, He will provide us more and more and more opportunities for faithfulness. Now, for some of you, some of us, you only hear this as condemnation. We tried. We failed. And we can't do it. But I need those of you in this room right now who feel that way to listen And listen very closely. Maturity does not mean a lack of failure. Maturity means that you're no longer controlled by your failure. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. You see, that's interesting that he draws a distinction here. Can you see? Can you all see? Look, 
This is important. He, he draws a distinction here between wind of doctrine and then he has a separate category by human cunning and then he has another category by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, he's not, he, he distinguishes human cunning and craftiness. Who in the Bible is represented by their craftiness, by their cunning? Can you think? It's the enemy, isn't it? He's drawing a distinction here. He's drawing a distinction between the way that humans will work to discourage you and the way that the enemy will work to discourage you. And one of the primary ways that the enemy is working to discourage those of you who feel like you can't do it because you've tried and you've failed is the enemy says to you, so stop trying. Don't get up again. Don't you dare get up again because you're just going to fall down one more time. Stop trying. That's the lies of the devil. That's the way the enemy works. He wheedles his way into your brain and convinces you that you're failed before you even start. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that the thief on the cross went to heaven. The gospel is that that Lazarus rose from the dead. The gospel is that the prostitutes repented and followed Jesus for the rest of their lives. The gospel is that the woman who was married five times met Jesus at the well and he knew everything about her and he still told her to follow him. That's the gospel. The gospel is get up and try again because Jesus has died for all your failures. Because we're being raised up in Christ, not in Adam. You see, Adam failed once, everything's over. Right? In Christ, you have forgiveness for every stumble that you hit. Rather, speaking the truth in love, this is verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We know that He is our security in our failures. We know that both He is the model that we should follow and the means by which we are given strength to follow it. And He is the one who will forgive you when you fail and you will fail. And you will fail. And when you do, what's the gospel promise? If you confess your sins, He who is faithful and just will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So where do we start? Remember, it starts small and it grows. You want to change the world? Be hyper faithful in your day to day. You want to change everything about the world? Be hyper faithful in your day to day. That's it. That's the difference maker. That starts with local church membership and the connection to a teaching ministry. You hadn't been to Sunday school yet. I got it. Hey, you know what? It happens one hour before church. So here's what you do. You just trick yourself, right? Just trick yourself. Oh, no, I'm just getting up for church. Oh, it's still dark outside. That's okay. We're going to go to church an hour early. And then you're here for Sunday school. Ta-da! You should come to Wednesday nights. On the 10th, I will even bribe you with food. Just come. Get connected to the teaching ministry of the local church 
Become members of the local church and increase your study and increase your faithfulness. Remember that every moment that the Lord has given you is an opportunity for you to be faithful in that little thing. Every single moment. Every single one. And sometimes you're going to screw it up. Amen. And then you fail and you say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I failed. I screwed that up. Please forgive me. Amen. Confess. Move on. Forgiven. And you move on to the next thing. Every moment is an opportunity. When you fail, confess, repent, get up, and go again. This is the difference maker. We just talked about four men, just four men, and their radical faithfulness in the little things of their life and how the Lord blessed that and grew it into something that changed the world. Imagine if we had a church full of those. Imagine. Imagine if we had a church full of stubborn, faithful people. Amen? We already had the first one because we're Southerners, I think. We're already real stubborn, aren't we, though? It's true. There's a few of y'all that are transplants from other parts of the country, and you're like, they are stubborn down here. You know, you know, you've seen it. You've seen it firsthand. But if we can take that stubbornness and spend it in the direction that when we fail, we just won't give up. I'm totally screwed up. Jesus, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I'm back on my feet. We're moving again. If we could just direct our stubbornness that way, what a great grace that would be. We just need the Lord's help in the faithfulness category. So let's ask him. Amen? Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In other words, faith is a gift from God, from you being connected to a teaching ministry and in submission to a local pastor and elder and and authorities over you. But ultimately, you can ask. So let's ask him. Let's ask him together right now. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord Jesus, we ask this day for faithfulness. Lord Jesus, we recognize that in this category, we struggle and we are weak, that we have been easily tempted by the enemy and tossed aside by our failures, that we have fallen into despair and shortcomings and thus have neglected our day-to-day call of faithfulness. And we're sorry. Lord Jesus, please forgive us. And in our confession, we hold fast to Your promise that if we confess our failures, that You will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would pour Your faithfulness out upon us. Pour it out. We need it. Give us the gift of faith. May we be zealous for good works. May we walk in obedience to you all of our days. And may we be a church full of difference makers for generations to come. May we lead well. May the Chalmers and the Spurgeons and the Calvins and the Whitfields of the future be here. 
And may we be faithful to you forever. And may it start in our households. In Jesus' name, amen.